Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, this episode will be part two of my look at Herman Melville's The Confidence Man, His Masquerade. Uh, this novel was published in 1957. It was Melville's final novel published during his lifetime. But there is, of course, Billy Budd, which we'll look at next, but that was published posthumously, I think in like 1924 or something. So, um, yeah, this is it. This is it kind of brings them to an end, Melville's prose prose career. He'd write some poetry during the Civil War, some of it quite famous. Claire Rowell, I think, was published after, after 1857, but um, this is all she wrote in terms of his, her pro, his prose work. Right, so in the last episode, we looked at the first 21, 22 chapters, I guess, of, of The Confidence Man, the first half of the book. We talked about, we, we saw The Confidence Man take on, I think, six, six or seven different personas as he progressively, you know, engaged in more and more complex schemes, everything from just begging, being a fake cripple, to to like fake stock schemes, stock schemes, to uh, to selling fake medicine, all the typical, all the hits, all the the, the standard American con artist uh, schemes. Um, now we've also talked about how underlying all this is this anxiety over a growing capitalist market economy, a mobile economy, a world in which you don't know the people you interact with, the people you engage in business with. So how can this function without confidence, without an idea of trust, without a basic um, belief in each other's trustworthiness? And that's the position of the confidence man throughout the novel. Of course, everyone who shows confidence in the novel is also very quickly schemed by, by the confidence man. But it seems to be a knot that's not really easily untied because if everyone is suspicious, if everyone is invested in money belts and locks and, and refusing to trust one another, there's not really going to be a foundation for any commercial interactions in the world, right? So this novel, it's not, it's just a day in the life uh, on a riverboat going down to New Orleans. Uh, I don't know how far one of these riverboats could travel in a day, but at the midway point of the novel, we're at, at Cairo, uh, Illinois. Illinois. Uh, so it's an interesting geographical location. One, they're going down to New Orleans, the slave trade center of America at the time. And then you got the slave, a slave ship on one coast, on one bank, I should say, one bank of the river. And you got a free state, Illinois, on the other bank. Um, so race overhangs it. It's not a major theme of the novel, but there is uh, racial issues in, in the story as well. So there's certainly a lot to talk about. Um, we're going to jump into the second half, which will begin with chapter 22, and, and we'll see what we find in the, in the second half of The Confidence Man. Uh, again, not much plot, not, not really a clear climax. I mean, there's thematic climaxes, I guess. But it's just a bunch of little scenes in which The Confidence Man and various personas interact with different people on the riverboat um, and has conversations about them about charity and trust and confidence. And, and he's always the advocate for, for expanding trust. So anyways, chapter 23. Now in chapter 23, we meet the final persona of, of the confidence man. Uh, so the, the, last person we, the last person he was interacting with um, was, uh, he was doing this as an herb doctor, an herb salesperson. I think that was the last, oh no, a man dressed as advocating a philosophical intelligence office. Anyways, but uh, he was talking to this Missourian. Now, Missourian is one of several characters in the novel who's very untrustworthy. He doesn't even want to trust humans. Uh, he goes so far as to wanting to have a fully automated and mechanized farm because he doesn't trust human beings. Uh, so at the beginning of chapter 23, the Missourian, and again, this is near Cairo, 
is thinking about um, the con man, not knowing he's a con man, but certainly thinking he's some kind of trickster, and and maybe he shouldn't trust him 100%. Um, and at this point, he's approached by the confidence man in a new disguise, and this will be the final disguise that, that we see in this in this particular novel, and it dominates the second half of the story. So we don't get the the the, the clothes change, the the you know the as often or at all in the second half of the novel. It's basically one character interacting with various people, some of whom we've seen before. There's a lot of storytelling in this part of the story as well. A lot of reflection on different people, some fake, some real, in the you know on the riverboat, and it's getting towards towards night as this happens. So this character that uh, we are introduced to, the final persona of the Confidence Man, is is just a cosmopolitan, and that's how he introduces himself as the cosmopolitan, which I think is is rather meaningful. The final. Uh, projection of the con man is is a kind of a universal identity the cosmopolitan identity right that suggests a kind of universality to it you know not a specific one it's the aggregate then of all the the cons all the con man's identities up to this point um, so they talk about a major th- a th- thing that's a major theme of the novel and that is the mask that people wear that's uh, come again and again in this story and I think that's really the heart of, of the story and of course, we, we just had the Missourian thinking about, with a degree of anxiety, you know, that this man's a trickster. And here's what the confidence man in the persona of, uh, of the cosmopolitan says about this. So first he warns him not to basically take life too seriously. And he says, trust me, no one has a better mix in and do like others. Sad business is holding out against having a good time. Life is a picnic in costume. One must take a part, assume a character, stand ready in a sensible way to play the fool. To come in plain clothes with a long face as a wise acre only makes one a discomfort to himself and a blot upon the scene. Leave your jug of cold water among the wine flasks. It leaves you unelated among the elated ones. No, no, this austerity won't do. Let me tell you, in confidence, that while revelry may not always merge into ebriety, so soberness is too deep potent, potentions, may be a sort of sottishness. Which sober sottishness, in my way of thinking, is only to be cured by the beginning at the end of the horn to tipple a little. End quote. Um, which is an interesting point of view for the confidence man to suggest we all wear masks because his whole stick throughout the whole novel has been we need to have, have confidence, right? And, and here he's basically admitting that identities are flexible and, and not fully trustworthy. But this isn't the first time that the confidence man plays the, the devil's advocate in a way. Um, so the Missourian exposes a bit of the problem, and that is, and he addresses this to the cosmopolitan, who is also calling himself a philanthropist. He says that even a pickpocket loves humanity, even if he's a villain, and he has to love humanity because he, he profits from, from human trust, right? That's the heart of the whole conflict, right? Why the confidence man advocates trust and love of humanity and benevolence is because that's the, that's the, that's the gap in one's wisdom that he's able to exploit. He eventually accuses the cosmopolitan of being a Diogenes, in other words, a misanthrope. Right now, Diogenes is—I'm assuming it's the the Diogenes that, that lived in a you know in a bucket on the streets of on the, on the streets or whatever. The one who talked back to Alexander the Great. There was another Diogenes though, but I, I think he's talking about the cynic philosopher. Now, I don't remember him being so much a misanthrope as as 
having different attributes. But in this this case, we have the Missourian accusing the cosmopolitan of being a, a, a misanthrope like Diogenes. So that's chapter 24 of this conversation. Um, in chapter 25, a stranger then approaches the cosmopolitan. He says that the Missourian reminds him of a man named Colonel John Mordock, uh, who is a famous Indian hater. And the con man says that he actually admires Indians. He loves Indians. And, and we end up with a whole kind of side conversation over a few chapters in which the question of, of hating Indians is discussed. So race kind of enters back into the narrative here, but uh, in respect to Indians. And of course, this is set in the West. It's set at a time when the West was being conquered by, by, the, by the U.S., and out of this, we get different kind of images of, of the Indian, right? Uh, one is, of course, the kind of the Indian as a savage brute, the violent uh, scalper, the one who will kill women and children or whatever, that, that kind of the, the savage. Then we have the noble savage idea, which is also part of, of the American stereotypes of, of the Indians. That goes back to the Enlightenment, but it certainly was, was there. Um, kind of what the picture we get here is that the people who kind of have to live with the Indians end up developing this culture of, of Indian hatred. But it's all about one character they're just talking about, a guy named Colonel John Mordock. Now, first, the con man says he loves Indians, and here's how he says it. He says, he hears about this guy who hates Indians, and the con man says, never heard of such a thing, hate Indians. Why should he or anyone else hate Indians? I admire Indians. Indians I've always heard to be one of the finest of the primitive races, possessed by many heroic virtues. Some noble women, too. When I think of Pocahontas, I'm ready to love Indians. Then there's Massanet and the Philip of Mount Hope and Tecumseh and Red Jacket and Logan, all heroes. And there's the Five Nations and the Arcanians, Federations and Communities of Heroes. God bless me, I hate Indians. Surely the late Colonel John Mordock must have wandered in his mind. And the response is, wandered in the woods. Which, of course, is the whole point. Like, if you're in the frontier and you're in this brutal conflict over empire, you know, it's not so easy to adore the Indian from afar, right? Now, obviously, this land was conquered and, and, and Indian autonomy was suppressed violently uh, over generations. Um, and that wouldn't have been possible without an ideology of, of hatred towards, towards Indian people. So the ideas of, of Colonel John Mordock are certainly a tool of, of empire. But the con man, in his normal benevolence and open-mindedness and all that, you know, says he, he actually admires the Indians. <clears throat> so then this leads us into chapter 26, which is really a long essay on, really about Mordok and how Mordok hates Indians. And there are various reasons for this hatred, some having to do with Indians being tricksters and frauds, essentially being con men, confidence men. Um, but the argument here given by this stranger is, that there's a certain well-developed art to Indian hating. It's not just an arbitrary reaction of, of a violent man or, or a hateful man. It's actually something that's developed. In fact, the chapter is called The Metaphysics of Indian Hating. But the root, root of all this is empire. And it's, it's a quite an honest look at it. Uh, the, uh, this is the stranger here saying this to the confidence man. Though held in a sort of barb. Barbarian, the backwoodsman would seem to America what Alexander was to Asia, captain on the vanguard of conquering civilization. Whatever the nation's growing opulence or power, does it not lackey his heels? Pathfinder, provider of security to those who come after him. For himself, 
he asked nothing but hardship. Worthy to be compared with Moses in the Exodus or the Emperor Julian on Gaul, who on foot and bare-browed and his head covered, at the head covered or, or, or mountain legions marched through the elements day after day. The tide of immigration, let it roll as it will, never overwhelm the backswood men into itself. He rides in its advance as the Polynesian upon the comb of the surf. So the backwoodsman, he bears the burden of this pioneering into the frontier and in doing so develops a culture of hatred for, for Indians. And so a rather long discussion about um, this, this whole kind of, I guess it's really the culture of the frontiersman as, as an Indian hater. Now, this section is not specifically about Mordock, but just in general about the, the pioneer. A really fascinating little window into American ideas about, about the frontier. And if you're interested in the frontier and in the relation with Indians and how it's been looked at by various authors, I think you've got to read this. It's chapter 26 of, of The Confidence Man. Chapter 27 then continues on this theme, but it focuses on the story of Mordock himself and really gives a little bit more detail on why, why so much he hates the Indians. And he really goes so far as to sacrifice himself and his career to focus on his Indian hating. Like at one point, he even gets a job like in the territorial government of Illinois, but he turns it down because he'd rather focus on being out on the frontier. It almost becomes a, a profession that he has to embrace. It's not something he can turn, turn away from. And his hatred is so total that he must be a devoted servant of that of that hatred so it's, it's a pretty bleak view of of human human nature it's a, it's a it's a view of humanity based on mistrust and violence and conflict which of course is totally contrary to the philosophy of the confidence man who wants a, a culture based on openness and benevolence and and, and sharing and all this stuff but again it's because he can exploit that right if if everyone is is at arms everyone is Defending oneself, everyone is thinking the worst of each other, as the frontiersman does the Indian. What space is there for the confidence man? But also, what space is there for any economic activity whatsoever? Right? You couldn't sell a stock. You couldn't sell an insurance policy. You couldn't do any of those things that are required of the modern economy. I mean, you couldn't even accept money, really, right? Without, you know, unless it's gold and you got a scale or something. It's just that the 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 inability of of a mistrusting world in a modern market economy. Maybe in the frontier it works, but it doesn't work in the, the world of the riverboat. And actually, I should, I should talk about this for a minute. I, you know, whenever Melville puts his characters on ships, especially since Redburn, White Jacket, Moby Dick, Billy Bud too, you know, in here in The Confidence Man, when you have people on a boat, it's a metaphor for the world. The, the boat is again and again, and the, the interactions on the ship or the boat on water are seen as metaphors for the world. In fact, you can go back to Marty and, and see this, I think. <clears throat> so we should probably take this riverboat to be a metaphor for, for the whole world, the whole liquid modern world. So anyways, this is a very fascinating section on, on relations with, with the Indians and the reality, the brutal reality of frontier violence. So then chapter 28 is like the coda to this conversation. And the stranger who's been telling the story about Mordock says that the Missourian is really much, repeats the idea that Mordock is very much like this Missourian in their focus on misanthropy. But the con man begins to disagree. He, he starts to think that the Missourian is not as bad as Mordock as described. And of course, the con man is always optimistic about uh, human openness and benevolence. 
So once again, we see the con man embracing a kind of a general liberality of character uh, and charity towards other people. And that, again, that's the heart of his game. And he, and it does lead him to be very generous and open-minded and, and optimistic all the time with, with everyone he, he, he deals with. So the, the ideology manifests in real ways. And part of that is in this liberality uh, towards, towards the Missourian, despite the Missourian coming off as a pretty harsh uh, character through this part of the story. So they end up toasting the goodness of humanity. And I think this is the second drinking scene in, in the novel. It's not enough drinking for these characters to get drunk, but I don't know, maybe someone should count drinks in, in this story and see if there is a, if the con man can hold his liquor or not. But they toast the goodness of humanity. The cosmopolitan wins over another, or I should say the con man wins over another person. But here's not a financial victory anymore. And he seems to be striving more and more for a symbolic victory. So when the character makes the switch to the cosmopolitan, he really is not after the financial schemes. There's a few little ones, but it's, you know, the novel kind of progresses from small schemes, coins for a, for a beggar, to insurance policies and, and fake medicine and all that. And with the cosmopolitan, this, this persona, which is, I think, the aggregate of all his identities, he's after really winning the moral philosophical battle, really, because that's, that's where he stakes his, his true claim. And that's more important than, than $20 here and there. So, he, he, so this is a victory for the cosmopolitan in that he, he kind of wins this symbolic victory over over cynicism and misanthropy. So um, in chapter 29, it's called The Boon Companions, and we see the friendship growing between the stranger and, and the confidence man. And the stranger gives his name as Charles Arnold Noble. So he's Charles, and then the cosmopolitan gives his name as Frank. So there's Charlie and Frank, and they're going to, much of the rest of the novel is about the interplay between these characters. They agree that confidence in each other is confidence among people, not just between them, but among all people, is too limited and too limited in the world. And they start to talk about the press as an example of something that people lack faith in, right? Because newspapers were partisan. They focused on one political party. So you couldn't trust the story. You couldn't trust the news, right? And Cosmopolitan, now going as Frank, argues that that the press has a duty to basically democracy and, and to, the, to the system, to the people. And that duty will always win out over self-interest. He's not denying that self-interest exists, but he does say that at the end of the day, democracy, the duty of the press to inform the public is going to be more important. So again, confidence in the press is, is important. Quote, I hold the press to be actually defender of the faith, defender of the faith and the final triumph of truth over error, metaphysics over superstition, theory over falsehood, machinery over nature, and the good man over the bad. Such are my views, which are stated at some length. You, Charlie, must pardon, for it is a theme upon which I cannot speak with cold brevity. So a little bit thrown in the press, because, you know, Melville is throwing a lot onto the, onto the page here. And, um, of course, that's a big part of this whole narrative. If we do see the boat as the world... You know, they have to have a conversation about the press as well as a, as a growing part of the civil discourse in America in the middle of the 18th century. So chapter 30 continues the, to talk about the press, but this talk eventually diverts into a discussion of Shakespeare and specifically Hamlet and the character of Polonius. 
And, you know, I had to actually relook up Polonius and, and, and Hamlet. He is like the advisor to the to Hamlet's uncle or whatever. And, you know, he's kind of seen as a malevolent force in the, in the, in the story, in the play. But the question here is, is he a sincere fool or a schemer? That's uh, the debate they're having. And again, it's a debate over confidence, right? Is he trustworthy or not trustworthy? And are, does he make mistakes just because he's foolish? So he's, he's, we should have confidence in him being truthful. He's just wrong or misguided or, or foolish. Or is he actually a manipulative schemer? And they go on like this. And then finally, just out of nowhere, the chapter ends with the confidence man saying that he needs money, specifically he needs $50. And then we get a bunch of short chapters, uh, starting with chapter 31, where Charles turns on Frank instantly, like on a dime, calling him like a beggar and an imposter and feeling deceived. So um, he's... Now, I don't know what's going on here quite. It seems the confidence man was trying, like, fishing for actual money, right? But, you know, when Charlie turns on him and starts calling them names, then Frank backs off, kind of saying, I'm just joking about this. But uh, he does turn quite violently against the cosmopolitan, basically seeing him as an imposter and someone who's just trying to warm up to him for... Um, for money, which I, I think suggests that that Charlie, despite what he said, didn't really have the confidence that the cosmopolitan thought he had instilled in him. So whatever victory he had achieved over this particular character is, was was not fully proven. Um, so in chapter thirty two, chapter thirty one is simply like two two like half a page, two paragraphs or something. Um, thirty two though, Frank then turns to Charlie and says, "Well, he was just joking." And he tried to distract uh, Charlie from this kind of embarrassing moment by saying he's going to tell the story of a, of a person named Charlemont, like C-H-A-R-L-E-M-O-N-T, Charlemont. I guess it's a French name. And so that's chapter, that jumps right to chapter 33, where the narrator, actually the narrator jumps in first and talks about the character of the cosmopolitan, the confidence man. And the narrator here justifies this scene by saying that fiction is, is hyper-reality and some degree of exaggeration is necessary among writing. Now this contradicts something the narrator said earlier where he says, you don't believe uh, this character because you've been indoctrinated in, in pop culture and novels that have simple one-dimensional characters, right? Like there's the villain, the good guy, the, the, the coquette, the, you know, the mother, whatever. They're all kind of one-dimensional characters. But you understand them, right? You learn their character and you know what they're about. And they help you guide you through the narrative. And then the, the narrator of the story says, you've been, re, you've been given up a, a bunch of baloney here because reality is complex. No one's got a single identity. We all wear masks. Um, but here he turns it around and says that, this scene is unbelievable because fiction is requires exaggeration of of reality, right? Hyper identity. It's called actually kind of a hyper realism. He's advocating for, and it, it seems to me this contradicts the previous statement. So even the narrator is wearing masks, believe it or not. And I, I think it's a rather fascinating aspect of this this for me. I don't even know where to nail down the narrator. He's out whenever he talks to us directly to the audience. He seems to be talking about narrative fiction and the role of it with vis-a-vis -vis reality. You know, and sometimes he's saying 
it's it's supposed to it, you know fiction should parrot reality sometimes here he's saying we almost have to exaggerate we have to go beyond reality in order to emphasize what's the important message of the of the story so chapter 34 then we finally get to the story of, of Charlemagne the one that the cosmopolitan promised to tell and this is a really fascinating little story I mean throw it out and just learn it because it's, it's kind of an interesting tale um, basically it's about a rich man who who earns a fortune and has all kinds of friends and has a certain characteristics uh, a certain benevolence uh, very kind of circle of friends and all that and finally he like loses all his money one day and instead of confessing this to his friends he just disappears he just escapes and vanishes and he goes off and and has to rebuild his fortune and then he finally comes back like years later with with this fortune so this is a character who's built his fortune in his life two distinct times and in doing so has kind of developed two distinct characters but when he finally comes back he, he just kind of picks up where he left off um, and he finally is able to admit though that he did this because he didn't want to he broke off with his friends and left to make his fortune back again because he didn't want his friends breaking up with him when they learned that he was bankrupt so that's the story of, of Charlemagne. So we have another example of a character here who wears a lot of, of, of masks uh, to navigate his life. In chapter 35, the moral of the story is given by, by the cosmopolitan, saying that really the moral of the story is that one shouldn't turn away from a friend in need, right? That if, if your friend thinks that you'll betray them if, if you find out they're on hard times, you'll you're not a very good friend. So it's not about, this, the moral is not so much about Charlemagne as it is about the friends who, who would have betrayed a friend in, in need, I guess. So he finally, um, well, the con man seems to be using the story to lay out that Charlie shouldn't distrust his statement of poverty, right? And if he's a true friend, he'll listen to and, and accept the fact that that he is poor um, and that he needs money and that now he did say earlier he was joking about needing money but at the same time he's saying you shouldn't you should have confidence right you shouldn't mistrust a friend and if we're friends you shouldn't mistrust me and, and turn on me so quickly so it's, a, it's an app story that that the confidence man in the persona of the cosmopolitan tries to use to essentially ridicule and attack the the, the philosophy of of Charlie um, so uh, that kind of wears down their, their conversation for a time. And in chapter 36, Frank is, is warned by another stranger not to talk to Charlie. And it takes out a long time to work out why. And the chapter is fairly lengthy. It's called Accusted by a, a Mystic. But this man's talking to him about Charlie rather obliquely. And then eventually he gets to the point, which is that he thinks Charlie is a, is a con man. And um, he's called like a Mississippi operator is the term. Uh, my friend then is something what the Indians call a great medicine. Is he, he operates, he purges, he drains off his replications. So there, it's all on page well, 1051 in the Library of America version where they kind of get to this accusation that Charlie is, is himself a con man, right? And we've seen this before. Obviously, the titular confidence man is not the only confidence man on this boat. There are other people playing games and, and running schemes and, and trying to one-up each other. 
um, maybe not as exaggerated in fashion as the con confidence man, but um, they're still there. So, um, chapter 37, the stranger invites uh, his, dis uh, or introduces uh, the cosmopolitan to his disciple, Egbert. And they want to teach the cosmopolitan principles of this stranger who's, whose name is Mark Winsome. So they say they have some kind of method uh, that they want to teach him. And it's not really clear what it is. It's not like a mystical method, even though they are introduced as a mystic, the mystical master. But they say they have some method that, a kind of a practice, a way to enlighten, to kind of a way of life, a way of philosophy that he wants to teach to the to the cosmopolitan. You can almost want to want to think that these people are con con artists too. So in chapter 38, they say that they'll need to set up a scene to show how their methods actually work. And this is then suggested by the cosmopolitan that that he sets up and he sets up a case for them to kind of act out. And the acting out will be essentially that Frank will play Frank and Ergbert will play Charlie, this uh, stranger that he was talking to before. And he will try to get Charlie to pay money to Frank. And through doing this, they'll kind of act out their, their methodology. So this is all done in chapter 39 called The Hypothetical Friends, where you have this Ergbert, this disciple of this, this one guy, uh, playing Charlie, and then Frank playing Frank, and Frank's going to ask for money. And this discussion quickly morphs into the realm of questions about banking and friendship. And uh, basically the conclusion that Ergbert, as Charlie gives, is that friends shouldn't give friends money. You know, like you should go to a bank because banks can be brutal, they can be harsh, they don't have a connection to you. Friendship cannot be sustained if there's kind of financial interest between them. But Frank insists that friendship should always come before money and that friendship uh, can override all of that and that money shouldn't get in the way of friendship. Therefore, he should loan money. So Egbert, of course, playing Charlie here, says he'll tell the story of a man named China Astor to prove his point, to prove the point that you cannot trust um, a friend with, with a loan. And so this is a section, like we just had the section on the press and the, the confidence in the press and the, the, can the, the press be trusted to deliver the news or whatnot. Here we have the question of really, of really banking and what is the proper foundation for banking? And, and it can't be based on friendship and cooperation. It has to be based on kind of antagonism. And this, is, of course, is again something that the confidence man resists because it's against this whole philosophy of charity and confidence. But in chapter 40, then we get the story of this man named China Astor um, from Erdberg. And so it's, it's just a story about a man who loans a th like $1,000 to a friend um, now, the friend doesn't pay China Astor off for the loan despite his business going well. So I think he eventually makes 10, he says he wants to make $10,000 before he pays off the loan to, to China Astor. Um, and this, of course, causes China Astor to have all sorts of anxieties and frustrations and, and feelings of betrayal. And he just, you know, eventually eats himself up inside with all this anxiety. He dies of anxiety over this debt. So, and even his gravestone then reads essentially that his downfall came from trusting a friend. Quote, the root of all this, this is actually on his, you know, this is just a story of course, but it's on his gravestone. The root of all was a friendly loan. 
And so the, the message here is like, don't lend your friend money, right? Financial things can't be done between friends. It, it has to be done in a in, in a objective, uh, antagonistic way almost. So in chapter 41, Frank, the cosmopolitan here, refuses to accept the lesson of the story. He instead insists on having confidence. And he, through this, he rejects the entire philosophy. Whatever kind of philosophy Mark Weinsum and Erkbert were trying to sell him, basically he rejects it as, as, as useless. Now, they're presented in the story as mystics, but I don't really see too much mystical about their, their presentation. They're not like trying to sell a religious idea. Unless, he's, unless Melville here is trying to say that banking is a type of mysticism, almost a type of alchemy, which I, I guess I would agree with to some degree. Um, but it's, it's kind of something I, I don't have entirely my head around this, this part of the story, uh, especially the, the identifying of these characters as like a mystic with a disciple. But um, it's, it's, it's certainly interesting. The discussion on banking, I think, is, is interesting. So um, now the novel's reaching its end. We get to the final set piece in the novel, uh, beginning in chapter 42. So the cosmopolitan goes to the barber shop. Now, way back in the very first chapter, we learned that the barber shop has a sign that says, like, no trust. And this is contrasted right away with the confidence man statement that we, you, you know, charity is the foundation of, of humanity. So we're now we're going to have this confrontation between these two characters, the cosmopolitan, the con confidence man, and the barber, uh, both of who have declared their statements kind of publicly early on. So he sees the sign that says, no trust, and this triggers the confidence man who cannot accept this philosophy. The barber tries to explain why he has this sign, but the cosmopolitan resists, even saying that he'll ensure his, his shop, his barber shop, against the problems that may arise from any issues of trust. So he says, you know, I have so much faith in human beings that you can take down this sign and I will insure you if by taking down the sign you are scammed or you know schemed or someone doesn't pay whatever i will i'll pay to recruit your losses so they managed to negotiate a deal this is in chapter 43 uh, he agrees he'll take down the no trust sign if the philanthropist the cosmopolitan will pay off any losses he incurs by trusting someone too much and after doing this the barber insists on 50 dollars up front saying obviously i'm going to be scammed there's no trustworthy people out there, so you might as well just pay me now. The cosmopolitan, though, walks away disgusted. Uh, but he does manage, through this conversation, to get a free shave out of the deal. So even at this late stage, he still is capable of a little scheme in order to get a free shave from the, from the barber. Which, of course, proves the barber's point of view, which is that you shouldn't trust people. You should be paid up front. So um, chapter 44, the narrator then jumps in with, with another question about, about storytelling and, and narration. Let me um, try to read this and make sense of it. Basically, what he's trying to say here, the narrator, is, you know, about the characters, if they're not believable, or if you want to have, if you want to, if an author wants to create believable original characters, he has to have bad luck because only bad luck will introduce you to these characters that are original and believable. Most of us through our run-of-the-mill lives just run into banal people that, that aren't going to be interested enough for literature. So you have to kind of have be unlucky uh, to produce original characters in fiction. Here's partially what he says. 
As for the original characters in fiction, a grateful reader will, on meeting with one, keep the anniversary of the day. True, we sometimes hear of an author who, at one creation, produces some two or three score such characters. It may be possible, but they can hardly be original in the sense that Hamlet is, or Don Quixote, or Milton Satan. There is to say, there are not, in a thorough sense, original at all. They are a novel, or singular, or striking, or captivating, or all four at once. More likely, they are what are called odd characters. But for that, are no more original than what has been called an odd genius in his own way. But if original, whence they came, or where does the novels pick them up? And then he goes on to explain how novels pick up these characters through, through their own lives, and usually through unlucky uh, encounters. Then we get to the final chapter of the novel, chapter 45, called The Cosmopolitan Increases in Seriousness. So after giving some of his final thoughts on confidence and the philosophy of confidence, he's giving it to an old man. The confidence man is approached by a boy who sells the old man a money belt. And in this way, the novel comes full circle because one of the first scenes in the novel was the, the selling of money belts to the people on the boat because obviously you can't, uh, you don't want to keep your money in your pocket on a riverboat uh, with all these strangers. You need to protect it, so you put it in a money belt. He also sells him a lock, and then he sells, sells him a counterfeit detector. Now, none of this shows a life lived with confidence, but nevertheless, the confidence man targets the counterfeit detector, the thing that can, counter, that can check if your money's counterfeit. And he says, this you really should throw overboard. Uh, so the cosmopolitan tries to convince the old man not to accept the counterfeit detector, since his life will be diminished without confidence. That's the argument. Like, you may have security, but your life will be, uh, in, you know, less meaningful or less valuable in some way. You'll be diminished if, it does, if you don't have confidence. And then the novel ends with the darkness comes, the night, day ends, day comes to an end. Uh, we get a little sequel tease, but of course there's no sequel to the novel. The final uh, words of the novel is, Something may, something further may follow to, of this masquerade. It's a little bit of a tease uh, that there might be a sequel, but uh, alas, we, we don't get any sequel. Melville would, would stop writing prose, more or less, at this point in his career. And he would work in a customs office, and, and that'd be his life. His writing career lasted um, just a little bit over 10 years, I think 11 years or so, from the publication of Type P to the publication of The Confidence Man. Uh, uh, pretty much one novel a year, or one book a year if you include uh, the Piazza Tales. All right, so what to say about this book? Um, well, I, I do think this is this is an image. This book is trying to describe the world that we live in, uh, a liquid world, um, uh, in a world in which there's a conflict between our kind of human emotions for solidarity with one another and our more hard-hearted uh, defensive aspects and I think our, our, our economy on the one hand requires some degree of trust but also a lot of skepticism and a lot of mistrust is in there um, so but it's a brilliant tale I mean I think it's a wonderful farewell to, to, to Melville's career in a way it's it's really quotable um, it's it's fun, I think, uh, um, and there's a lot we can we can suck out of it. There's almost no aspect of American life from the mid-19th century that Melville doesn't touch on, in a way. And we've got this wonderful cast of characters. Yeah, a lot of them are the confidence man and different personas, but they do reflect different slices of life. Um, 
you know, each character in the novel has their own agenda, their own story. Some, some of them have schemes. In this way, it is a microcosm of democratic America. But we have this mixture of people trying to take advantage of each other, sell their scheme or idea. But at the same time, there's, there's kind of this value of a shared solidarity, the, the, the philosophy of confidence throughout it all. Um, even the narrator points out that the riverboat is a great place to explore the full diversity of humanity because at every stop people got, get, in and off, get on and off. The population is steady, but it's always changing. And it's always shifting. It's, it's very liquid. That's, that's what I kind of like about it. Um, you know, it's, now, the bad side of this, of course, is like we don't have to have connections with anyone, right? We, someone, we talk with someone. If they bore us, we move on to the next person, right? We don't have to build relationships. And that's, of course, a, a downside, I think, of the, of the liquid world. Uh, the confidence man never dwells long on one person even, you know. Of course, he's trying to move from person to person for his schemes. But, you know, he's almost like a, a position of someone in a bar, right? Drinking all day, eavesdropping on every conversation. Uh, the narrator is almost like a, a bee then kind of observing all this. But, you know, the confidence man is going from person to person, uh, getting what he can out of them. And in a sense, you know, it's interesting, but it, there's a dark kind of underbelly to all that. Um, and we are dealing with America in all its diversity and, and energy, in fact. The stories are as varied, a varied people are, you know, revealing many aspects of American life, which is why we're right to compare this novel to the Canterbury Tales, which actually Melville does directly in, in, this, in the story. Uh, the people on the riverboat are, are more or less equal. It, there seems to be no end to the mask that people are wearing. It's not just a confidence man who wears masks. And we can't really trust anyone's identity here because there's no confirmation of anyone's identity. We don't get anyone's background. Um, like in Pierre, remember here, we get like a third of the novel is this guy's background. We, we don't get that at all here. We just get um, these things happening. So, but despite this equality, or, you know, not, not, you know, black people aside and the character who's who's black here isn't even really black right it's the confidence man in in disguise so there's this constant give and take between people that are trying to recruit others into these various schemes um, right one and then we have all these interesting ideas here which also is part of american life this utopian kind of fascination with reform and improvement right you get this scheme to reduce poverty by basically including a global progressive income tax that would uh, produce you know enough money to to deal with poverty you get someone else who thinks let's have a fully automated farm and we don't need any people uh, others are kind of trying to one one guy's trying to well, the confidence man of one of his personas trying to push an ideal city to develop so it's it's pretty fascinating you know there's a dark side too though like the story of, of Colonel Mordock you know, this Indian hater who's trying to get revenge for the murder of his, his family. But it's just the richness of America on display here. And I, I think that's one reason I, I love the novel so much. Um, as for specific themes, I don't, I don't know if I have to say too much more about it. Uh, obviously, race is a theme in the novel, both the, with Indians and with slavery. The, the whole ship is going to the slave market. Um, I don't know how many of the people here are slave traders. You know, we don't meet everyone on the boat, but that, that seems to be overhanging it. Um, one bank of this voyage is along a, a slave state, Missouri. 
Uh, we have the theme of capitalism here and the institutions of capitalism and the connection between capitalism and, and mistrust and trust, confidence and misanthropy, that they seem to go hand in hand, but they conflict. And can a global or a national capitalist marketplace, market economy, where you're doing with, you know, where people in New York are doing with people in Chicago or New Orleans, can that be held together without confidence? Mobility is here. Uh, we got people literally moving, the whole boat's moving, right? And people move around and flip around, talking to different people. There, there's nothing as steady or static here. Um, it's, it's the kind of uh, novel that might, you know, I don't know, a, a director could have some fun with, I guess, if, if they wanted to make make a story. I don't know if they'd be kind of modernized and updated in various ways, but I, I think a certain director could have fun kind of filming this because of it, how quickly the scene shift and move. I don't know. Without a plot, though, I don't know how it would do <clears throat> to be to uh, just a good baby, like stylistically kind of interesting. The theme here of masks is runs throughout the whole thing. The idea that we all wear masks, that we don't have true identities, or at least in public, we don't have true identities. If we do, it's hidden from us. And we don't know the true story of any of these characters. We don't get any background. The only stories we get backgrounds for are people people are talking about. Right there. And then often those are fake stories or just made up tales. So. That's masks. Um, we got competing confidence mans, although there is a the titular confidence man. There are many other schemers and scammers, and everyone's kind of running a game on one another. Um, and then the question that really we want to ask is, is confidence bad? Don't, do we need it? It's presented as kind of dangerous because it is the, the tool of the confidence man. But what's the alternative? Misanthropy? That's that's what's suggested, right? That, that they're really put as contracts. Maybe there's a middle ground, but we're not really given that in this story. So for better or for worse, I, I think we have to go with the confidence man and, and embrace a bit of of confidence, you know, just an open-mindedness about other people because the alternative is, is just mistrust and a breakdown of, of the whole system, I, I suppose. Uh, maybe that's not bad, though, given that it was a system based on empire and slavery and all that stuff. But anyways, I think that does it for The Confidence Man. I'm out of things to say about this novel. Um, so what we're going to do next is, is look at Billy Budd. I'll just do one episode on it. Billy Budd is, is less than 100 pages. Um, I want to say 70, 80 yeah, 80 pages or so. So I'll just do one episode on, on Billy Budd. It's, it'll be a quick read. There's a lot to say about Billy Budd. It's a, it's a great novel, but I'll, I'll try to cram it all into one one episode, keeping it under an hour if I can. So anyways, as always, thanks for, for listening. Um, if you have any thoughts about The Confidence Man, about this era of American history, about uh, modernist fiction, I didn't really say much about this, but... Um, Confidence Man seems to be a precursor to modernism in a lot of its approaches and ways of storytelling. The fact that it doesn't have a plot, that's kind of episodic nature, it's just, you know, the flipping identities around, all that stuff is reminiscent of some modernist literature. So, um, what, but what do you think about The Confidence Man? Let me know below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, I will... I'll be back shortly with my thoughts on Billy Budd. As always, thanks for, for listening, and I'll see you, see you next time.